Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Moments in Weed, our companion series to Great Moments in Weed History, in which we talk about weed issues of today. We have a guest on Moments in Weed. We're very excited to welcome an OG cannabis journalist who, Bean, you've known for many, many years and worked alongside. Mary Jane Gibson and I met while working at High Times back when it was cool and have been friends and colleagues, I would say, for more than a decade now. And yes, Mary Jane is her real name. Yeah, that's right. She gets asked that all the time. I've seen her get asked this almost every time we've hung out in a group setting. But yes, she's very cannabis enthusiastic. Her name happens to be Mary Jane. And she's also just a killer journalist. As we see in this article, she just wrote for Rolling Stone inside California's cannabis crisis. So if you live in California, you've probably noticed that weed is really, really expensive. And there's all this hoopla about the industry being unfair for various reasons, Mary Jane really goes in depth and uncovers some of those reasons in this fantastic piece. Yes, and this is an issue not just in California, but anywhere that legalizes cannabis is going to face this conflict with capitalism. I wrote in my book five, six years ago, cannabis should transform capitalism, not the other way around. Unfortunately, we're going to hear about uh, an aspect of this where capitalism seems to be kicking cannabis's ass, but I guarantee you the empire is starting to fight back. You know, everything bad that has happened to America's small business operators and family farms over the last 50 years is now happening to cannabis all at once because of this abrupt change in the law. And from Mary Jane's reporting, there's a lot of really surprising factors to this that go beyond just a unreasonable tax rate from the government. As I said in a column many years ago, do not trust the authorities who for so long unjustly prohibited cannabis to now justly regulate it. And we are seeing that play out. But we're thankful that Mary Jane has gone in the trenches and blown the dust off some of these revelations because, quite frankly, they are shocking if you are a cannabis person. Absolutely. And of course, a huge shout out to Mary Jane also as one half of the Hynamic duo known as <laughs> Weed and Grub, along with her co-host, Mike Glazer. Uh, uh, Mike Glazer. They are <laughs> we really love and respect what they do on their podcast. If you enjoy great moments in weed history, we know you will enjoy Weed and Grub. And they are, like us, legacy cannabis media. You know, we're going to talk about legacy growers in this episode a lot. We got to combine more decades of weed experience on great moments in weed history than we'd probably like to admit to, trying to <laughs> maintain a, a, a single finger hold on youth culture. But <laughs> <laughs> And I, I will also say that Mike Glazer, beyond being a cannabis person, is also one of my favorite stand-ups in L.A. I've performed with him many times. He's a regular at my show at El Cid, and he's just a fantastic and interesting and hilarious person. So please check out their show. And of course, if you want to support legacy cannabis media at the grassroots level, and I know that you do, the place to do that is at Great Moments in Weed History 
Com, where you can join the legitimately growing number of people who are joining our Patreon. It is very exciting and humbling to us that this seems to be working. People seem to want to put five on it. They want to, for whatever reason, look at us and not just hear our strange voices and uh, <laughs> unique mix of political diatribe and nonsense punnery. Yeah, uh, strange voices they are. Uh, look, me and I know, we know how weird our voices are and the odds that these two weird-voiced guys would end up doing a audio format show together. Uh, we're not great, but we're doing it. We're here. We love you for supporting us. So thanks if you already support us on Patreon. If you don't, please check us out, greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And if you don't have the ducats right now, it's all good. We are still a free show for anybody who wants to listen. We just ask that if you want to help us out, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends who might like it about great moments in weed history. Yes, join us on social media, all platforms except like the new cool ones, at GMIWH <laughs> Podcast. Please post about the show. You can use the hashtag Great Moments in Weed History, and you can please, please go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and at least see what you're missing. And hopefully, you know, put five on it or a little more, and you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly. Fantastic. You've been doing it wrong this whole time, despite what you might think back <laughs> there at home. All right, guys, let's get into this interview with Mary Jane Gibson. All right, and now we'd like to welcome... Cannabis journalist Mary Jane Gibson to the podcast. How's it going today, Mary Jane? I'm so happy to be here. I love Great Moments in Weed History so much, and both of you individually and together as podcasters. So I'm so stoked to be here. Likewise, all the feelings there are mutual, of course. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, absolutely. We are basically, I like to think, the Rat Pack weed podcasting crew you should see us hit vegas at like 3 a.m with big joints dangling yeah mike glazer is definitely our sammy davis jr <laughs> <laughs> it's not me a lot of people thought it's me and he's the sinatra but no uh it's the sammy guess i'm the dean martin i don't know <laughs> i do like to roast weed Okay. Hey, there, there it is. Uh, we cannot escape <laughs> the pun abyss. Mary Jane, we did not invite you here to our podcast to subject you to my bad weed puns. We are actually here to discuss your very recently published, very excellent story in Rolling Stone that just came out. Thank you. You know what? I really tried to do was to take a holistic look, get a whole picture of what is going on with small farmers in California cannabis since Prop 64 passed. We are right now facing what a lot of people are talking about as an extinction level event, meaning many small farmers are losing their businesses, livelihoods, and in some cases, anecdotally, their, their lives. They're facing extreme financial hardship, over-regulation, excessive taxation, all the things that farmers normally face, including drought, wildfires, and COVID, and the global supply chain. So the events that are facing them are seemingly insurmountable and endless. There's no relief in sight. I really wasn't aware of the crisis that was unfolding in California cannabis until late last year. Dave, I saw you at the Emerald Cup. And that was truly when I was there to start reporting this story in, in December of uh, 2021. So it just came out. I'm really glad to have written about it for a few reasons. One, to sort of give people who are not in California a bigger picture of what's going on. And also to really highlight the fact that it's the small farmers who are suffering. You know, it's it's basically small small farmers facing off against big weed. Yeah, the 
Emerald Cup is this incredible event and celebration. Tens of thousands of people. Abdullah and I have performed there. It's basically the Oscars of weed. Yeah, absolutely. But always really at the core for these small farmers. And yet, uh, MJ, what, what happened to the small farmers at the actual Emerald Cup, this citadel of strength for them? 27 small farms had been given free booth space and promotion at the Emerald Cup to show their weed to buyers. Right before we showed up, the Department of Cannabis Control had come in in uniforms and shut them down from displaying any weed. They were told that they were not allowed to display any cannabis at all. They would only be able to display packaging and photographs for buyers to look at. And the outrage, you know, the, the distress that was palpable amongst these 27 mom and pop farms, these cultivators, these legacy growers, these people who arguably created the industry that we have today. It was heartbreaking, really. They were being told that this cannabis, this one ounce of personal product that was for display in locked jars for people just to sniff and look at, not to touch, not to smoke, was basically like weapons grade plutonium, you know, that they, they weren't allowed to show it off and that they had to uh, take it out of, uh, you know, sight. And, you know, they were just like, what, what are you talking about? How are you how are you supposed to go to a farmer's market and sell your tomatoes if you just like got a picture pinned up behind you? Like, this is the same thing. This is cannabis. It's an agricultural product. Ultimately, the Emerald Cup organizers did come to an agreement with the DCC to allow these small farmers to display their weed for the rest of the weekend. But that's how we opened the story. It was just like this bureaucratic overreach and overregulation is indicative of what's really happened to these small farmers since Prop 64 was passed. Yeah. And I'd like everybody to know that uh, those officers are on the state's payroll. You are paying those people's salaries to go and bust these small growers with their little ounce of, uh, you know, of display cannabis. Talking about legacy growers, can you give us a sense for someone who might not know what is a legacy grower? How did they get there? Why is this something that we really need to protect? Anyone who grew either under Prop 215, which was passed in 1996 as the Compassionate Care Act, which legalized medical marijuana for California patients, or unregulated. Just anyone who was growing before Prop 64, they are considered legacy growers. They thrived in what became known as sort of the gray market under Prop 215, and they were encouraged to come on board in Prop 64 as existing growers. They were promised that they would be given a measure of protection as legacy growers. The people who created the cannabis scene that we have right now. Not just did this outside of any regulation or outside of any help from the government, but of course faced raids of their homes, helicopters descending out of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, over like 30 or 40 plants sometimes. And even if you are not a legacy grower, you smoked their weed and you really benefited from the risks that they took and the love that they put into this plant. And that's why so many of us are upset who really did see this selling out of that whole community coming, tried to fight against it. And I want to read a section to you, Mary Jane, from your Rolling Stone article and then get your reaction. Protecting existing growers was a pillar of Prop 64, which legalized marijuana for adult use. Worried that the measure would fail without the support of rural farmers, legalization advocates included a provision to encourage legacy growers to join the legal market, promising that no cultivation site would be larger than one acre until 2023. This supposedly meant that small farms wouldn't face competition from multi-acre megagrows for at least five years. But in November 2017, Two months before Prop 64 was set to go into effect, but after people voted on it, 
cannabis industry lobbyists persuaded the California Department of Food and Agriculture to change that provision, the CDFA removed the limit on the number of quarter-acre licenses available to individuals or companies, creating a loophole that opened the door to multi-acre farms through bundling or what's known as stacking licenses. So the lifting of the one acre cap protection was the main thing that almost every small grower and activist that I spoke to pointed to as the reason behind the current market collapse. The fact that these larger businesses were able to stack licenses in order to be able to grow way more cannabis than the market could hold ended up tanking the price because of an oversaturation of available legal product. And those small farmers were never given the footholds that they were promised, that five-year foothold to be able to not face the competition from these big farms. Voters who approved Prop 64 approved this protection. And in 2017, the lobbyists were successful kind of under cover of darkness to all of a sudden have the CDFA just lift this cap and say, well, no, now, now that's not there anymore. And, you know, there was really nothing that these small farmers could do. You know, I spoke to several of them who are like, we don't have time to go rally in Sacramento and change policy. I'm just trying to make it as a farmer, which is already an incredible, stressful life. They trusted the policymakers to take care of them. They trusted the regulators to do the right thing. And these lobbyists were successful in removing that one acre cap. The small farms were, were really, they felt a real sense of betrayal, especially because one of those lobbyists was the head of Harborside Dispensary at the time, Steve D'Angelo. He was also in charge of an organization called Flourish that was looking to have that one acre cap removed in order to be able to grow larger amounts of cannabis. You know, I reached out for comment. He said that was to keep the price down for consumers and patients. That's why he says he lobbied to have that one acre cap lifted. But the small growers that I spoke to really said, you know, that well, he sided with big weed against the small suppliers who had been supplying Harborside for many years up until Prop 64 passed. So it's just a very thorny issue with a lot of big feelings around it, to be honest. I think a lot of people thought this was recreational legalization, meaning decriminalization, nobody else going to jail for it. But instead, it sort of criminalized the people who cannot afford the $100,000 license or multiple licenses, right? But at the same time, I think for the average person to hear that argument, it's somewhat convincing, right? To say, oh, this is about keeping costs down for everyone. One of the biggest problems with legal cannabis in California, high taxes, high costs of doing business means high prices for cannabis means that people who want to buy legal cannabis can't really afford it, right? It's it's incredibly expensive. And and I think that, you know, that's created the massive black market that we see that everybody's really contending with now. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, well, what we got was the worst of both worlds, where pot costs a shitload of money and it's a free market capitalist bullshit Babylon system where you can only get into it if you have lots and lots of money to get through all of this red tape. And and here's the thing, this was a bait and switch. You know, I think a lot of the people, particularly from the activism side of it, who supported and even worked on Prop 64 have gotten a bad rap because the law that was on the California ballot, the law that we all voted for, and the law that frankly, you know, I had a lot of misgivings about, but I looked at this provision and I said, hey, if you can really give these small farmers a five-year head start, 
I think that's the best deal we're going to get. That was a good deal on paper. And the sellout of that deal came in Sacramento in the middle of the night with lobbyists like Steve D'Angelo and other people who saw that opportunity. And this is a classic not smoky backroom deal where all of these farmers got sold out. They didn't get sold out by voters. They didn't get sold out by activists. They got sold out by the government and industry lobbyists for corporate cannabis. And as so often happens with that situation that was done with almost no media coverage, I think it would be news to many people that that actually happened even today, years later. The prevailing narrative in media is that the market collapse has to do with high taxes, drought, and wildfire. Every advocate, Janine Coleman, the head of the Origins Council, which is an advocacy group that represents over 900 members, Michael Katz, the head of the Mendocino Cannabis Alliance, which represents hundreds of people, they all say it was the removal of the one-acre cap that started what is now this crisis facing small growers. As if there weren't enough obstacles to actually running a successful, profitable cannabis business, there's also the state's cut, right? You got to pay the piper. Uh, And of course, Mary Jane, you highlighted this issue in your article. I'm going to read a little excerpt from it here. Excessive taxes are also a huge problem, growers say. A flat cultivation tax based on weight rather than market price is levied before the crop even leaves their farms. In 2021, the tax on a pound of cannabis was $154. As prices nosedived, that meant the tax rocketed from 10 to 20% of the price per pound to as much as 80%. There are also state and local excise taxes and a sales tax. Despite a $31 billion surplus in cannabis tax revenue, Regulators raised the cultivation tax to $161 per pound on January 1st. Yeah, it really illustrates the greed at the state level. You know, like a thing that we've highlighted on this show so many times is that the purpose, right, the heart behind legalization, instead of being a criminal justice issue, has been a tax revenue issue. And here we see that despite a surplus, they're raising the taxes It's not going the other way. They're not realizing, oh, we're fueling a black market. Uh, We should lower the tax on weed to make these businesses more competitive. Instead, they are like, oh, we made a few billion dollars. Let's take a little bit more of that shit. And, you know, I think it just shows the state's ignorance and, you know, lack of care when it comes to this industry. And, you know, that that's the action that is truly happening at every level of the cannabis industry right now is to rally against these taxes from small farmers all the way up to big business. There are social equity operators and legacy farmers rallying on the steps of the Sacramento Capitol, in addition to industry leaders, Steve D'Angelo being one of them, who are writing open letters saying, you know, this is crushing us. This is killing our legendary cannabis industry. It's become an example of how not to legalize. Restructure is what's being called for, the elimination of the cultivation tax, the suspension of state and local taxes. Something just needs to happen because I spoke to one grower named John Casali from a place called Huckleberry Hill uh, in or Huckleberry Farms in Humboldt. And he broke down the price that he's getting per pound of cannabis. He's able to sell his gorgeous craft cannabis at $500 a pound right now. He's paying $161 of that $500 to cultivation tax before it even leaves the farm. And he's paying a trimming fee. Then he's paying waterboard and licensing fees and permitting fees and distribution fees. He's barely breaking even with $500 a pound. And the government's bite that they're taking out of this pound of cannabis before it even leaves the farm, it is levied before you've even sold it. It's not based on market price. 
it's based on a pound of weed that you just grew that is on your farm. It's insane. It also raises the point that if you have lobbying power and you're so concerned about the cost to consumers, then instead of lobbying for big grows to come in, why not lobby, use that lobbying power to lower this ridiculously high tax rate? And I think that's where Steve D'Angelo's argument kind of falls apart. If you're really concerned about the consumer and not just lining your own pockets because you are in part big cannabis, then why aren't you using your lobbying power to actually benefit the consumers by lobbying the government? Absolutely. And on the flip side, I want to highlight that this has created a really cool, strange Bongfellows moment in weed politics, where we've talked a lot on this show about the social equity sellout in cannabis. And mm -hmm. now we see the sellout of the small farmers. And those two groups came together on January 13th in Sacramento, California, the state capital, to publicly call out the government where the government lives for this bullshit. And I want to play a quick clip from that. And when we come back, Mary Jane, we could talk about how that's already starting to have a positive impact. I'd like to welcome John Casali, owner and operator of Huckleberry Hill Farms. <laughs> Thank you, Amber. I appreciate you, and I thank you guys for letting me speak today on the behalf of the small farmers of the Yellow Triangle. It's kind of ironic that I'm here today. Um, 25 years ago, I was standing in um, I was standing in a federal courthouse building in San Francisco, looking at 10 years to life for growing this plant. People from Willow Creek drove nine hours to get here, and are going to turn around in a couple hours and drive nine hours back. We want you to know that. Over 50 to 60% of us might not make it to the end of this year, and something needs to be done, not tomorrow. It needs to be done now. Yeah. So, I appreciate you. Thank you all. So Amber Center is the executive director of Supernova Women, which is the uh, Oakland nonprofit that organized that January 13th rally, which is dedicated to people of color in the cannabis industry and social equity being able to benefit from legal cannabis. She invited Janine Coleman from Origins Council to rally on the steps with her. And Janine, as you say, is organizing on behalf of small farmers. And it is truly that Bongfellows moment of these two pieces of the industry who have been shunted out of the way by big weed to come together and fight together. And they are having some measure of success. I think legislators are starting to pay attention. And recently, the Humboldt County Growers Alliance successfully lobbied the Humboldt County Board of Supervisors to suspend 85% of the cultivation tax for this year. So it's not an entire elimination and it's a... It's sort of a suspension or a pause in the tax rather than abolishing it entirely. But it is, at the very least, an acknowledgement of the deep need for something to happen and for things to fundamentally change, or these farmers are going to lose their livelihoods. And now we have seen uh, Senate Bill 1074 introduced for the entire state that would take the dry weight tax on growing legal cultivated cannabis completely off the books. So the momentum is starting to swing the other way. It is a really great time if you live in California and care about cannabis to get involved. And if you live anywhere else, 
any place that cannabis and capitalism intersect, it is going to be battle. They are not going to be your friends. They are not going to tell you the truth, and they are certainly not going to put your interests above theirs. So you can never be too early in organizing, not just to end these arrests and stop this incredibly racist and oppressive prohibition system, but to look beyond that and say, how do we create a system where cannabis transforms capitalism and not the other way around? Yeah, this is something that comes up again and again. It's basically the subhead of our show. <laughs> constantly, we say it that, you know, that this is the battle we're fighting now. It used to be, oh, we're trying to get decriminalization. We're trying to get legalization. We're trying to get licensing and regulation and the state's cooperation and all that, right? All the other Asians. But, you know, in, in, in that, we also have to remain vigilant because capitalism is an incredibly powerful system, right? That it's just going to suck things up into it, no matter how enlightening those things happen to be, right? And it's going to turn them around and turn them into a cash crop. So it's fantastic to hear that there is some hope, right? Like if you can do it on a county level, like Humble has, you can do it on a state level, right? But I think what we need is more champions of cannabis. I think it's really disheartening that someone like Steve D'Angelo, who is a face of cannabis, right, is turning out not to stand with the most vulnerable people in the industry. Because the whole issue with capitalism, the reason that you shop at a Walmart instead of at a corner store is because we allowed that as a society to happen. Because we were willing to pay a lower price for stuff and, you know, that's the reason that Amazon can exploit its workers, right, is because we're willing to pay that low, low price. And I think that cannabis is the one thing in which we should take a step back and say, no, this is this is about more than just me getting the weed I need that gets me high at the right price and say that this should be something that actually revolutionizes it for everyone, that includes everyone. And also... I will contend, and I and I would like to ask your opinions on this because I think it's a little hippy-dippy for some listeners, maybe. But I think that the weed is better when it's small batch. You're talking about a farm that's, you know, like 10 acres that's being essentially run by robots. That weed is not going to be as good. I don't have quantitative data to say that, but I have a qualitative lifetime of cannabis <laughs> smoking experience. Does not compute. Does not compute. Robot <laughs> weed essentially same <laughs> no i mean that we we wouldn't be asking this question about wine we wouldn't be asking this question about craft spirits we wouldn't be asking this question about chocolate or any kind of agricultural meets food meets drug type product craft is where it's at and it's also we're not trying to create an industry of craft growers, we're trying to protect what already exists. And these are not just people who have nice farms and nice hearts. They are the people who kept weed going during prohibition because if they had succeeded in stopping people from growing this plant, we would have never legalized it. 
That's right. And and so many of those growers are just exhausted by the regulations of this market and they're turning back to the illicit market. They're saying, "Why why should we try to exist under these regulations? Why why shouldn't we just do what we've always done and grow the best weed in the world without having to give any of our money to a regulatory agency that is doing us no favors?" Largely, these are family operations, one and two person operations in many cases, and they are saving in every way that they possibly can on operating costs from seed to harvest and trimming and curing, and it's still not enough. So we do have to protect them. They are doing everything they can. They have tried to exist within the regulations laid out by Prop 64, and we've failed them. Yeah, and I think the state's biggest mistake is thinking that Stoners will just buy any cannabis at any price. I don't know how they've ignored this, but we already know from years of experience where to get our cannabis in the gray market, in the black market, right? Like we have the infrastructure in place to have a gray market because the thing is, you know, what we've learned from just centuries of different types of enforcement is that people want substance and substance will find people. Literally, it's like water blowing down a mountain. And I think that that's the state's biggest mistake is underestimating our ability as a community to support ourselves outside the lines of the law. So I think what you're saying is weed will find its level. (laughs) It will. Much like water. And the thing that we can all do is... Every time you buy weed, think about where that money's going, whether you're doing it within the legal system or outside of the legal system, or maybe there's no legal system for you to access. The more you can know about where your weed dollars go and support these family farms, these legacy growers, I uh, am going to ask you, Mary Jane, if you will join us. I actually have a little weed that I picked up from John Caselli's farm. I'm going to run and go grab it through the magic of television. It will take one second. And... uh you know, we can all support these family farmers in the way that I I know we do love to do. (laughs) And there you have it. Please check out this article in Rolling Stone. It is called Inside California's Cannabis Crisis by Mary Jane Gibson, an OG cannabis journalist. Also check out her podcast with another friend of our podcast, Mike Glazer. It's called Weed and Grub. It's really our sister show. So please have a listen. Mary Jane, Thank you so much for being here with us today. Let's get high together. What do you say? Hell yes. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'll see you in the real world soon, hopefully. Yep. You can really taste the taxes in there. Uh (laughs) I don't taste any taxes in my (laughs) Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.